Amen, church. Please have a seat. Welcome. So glad you are here this morning to worship with us. If you're joining us online, we give you a welcome as well. So glad that you tuned in. This week has been a week, huh? All right. All right. Still got some energy after four days of VBS. You know, I want to say that the kids had a lot of fun. I want to say that the volunteers had a lot of fun. But it wasn't just about fun. Yes, we wanted them to enjoy it. But seeds were planted. Gospel seeds were planted. Just to give you an idea, we averaged between 75 and 77 kids per night. We had a total of 80 kids registered this week. Gospel seeds were planted. And let me just invite you to continue to pray Continue to pray that the seeds that were planted will germinate and grow. And for those kids who do not yet know Christ as their Savior, that they will, in God's perfect time, come to know him. Well, the year was 1718. Lieutenant Robert Maynard was commissioned by Alexander Spotswood, governor of the colony of Virginia, to hunt down the infamous... Pirate Blackbeard. Robert Maynard was given two sloops, which is a type of sailboat, and crews to man both sloops. And on November 22nd, Maynard caught up with Blackbeard at the Ocracoak Inlet off the coast of North Carolina. I know you were expecting the Caribbean, but no. After a heavy battle, which ended in a sword duel between Blackbeard and Maynard, Maynard and his crew overcame Blackbeard and won the day. Their commission completes, they headed back to Virginia. True story. Exciting story. If you've never heard it, I encourage you to look it up sometime and read it. It's a story of bravery. It's a story of triumph. It's a story of one man who was given a commission to boldly go and hunt down this traitorous, murderous pirate, and he saw it through at great peril to his own life. This morning, I am excited to introduce our new series entitled Commissioned. We as Christians have been commissioned to take the gospel message to a desperate and dying world. Now, we'll be spending the bulk of our series in the book of Acts, But to start things off, we want to take a look at our commission. We want to take a look at the Great Commission. This is where we see exactly what we as Christians are called to do. We have been commissioned. Now, that word commission can mean several things, but we're using it in our series as this definition. The act of committing or sending to. The act of entrusting as a charge or duty. It's the act of committing or sending to. It's the act of entrusting as a charge or duty. We as Christians are commissioned. We are charged. We are sent to take the gospel and to make disciples. We are to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now this, by the way, is the heartbeat of our church here at Harvest. Our mission statement, and you can see this on our website online, our mission statement is this. It's to glorify God by making mature disciples who worship, walk, and work for Jesus Christ. That's our mission statement, and we get that from our passage this morning. So you could say 
that this is our mission statement passage. And I'm excited and delighted to be able to preach to you from this passage as we launch our new series, Commissioned. We as a church have been commissioned to make disciples, and today I want to lay that out, and I want to address three parts to the commission. Three parts to the commission from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Here's your first part this morning. We are commissioned to go to all nations. We are commissioned to go to all nations. Join me at the top at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, verse 16 opens up, and it tells us that the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Now, there's a lot of significance in that because this is the first time that they are referred to as the 11. Prior to this, they'd always been known as the 12. So we can't help but be reminded of the traitor, of Judas, who by this point had hanged himself after leading Jewish leaders to arrest Jesus. Judas missed it. He who walked with Jesus, he who himself did miracles, he who heard the very words of Jesus, he missed it. And that's tragic. And part of what I want to say to you this morning is this, don't miss it. You can seemingly follow Jesus and still miss it. Don't miss it. And I'm going to come back to that thought here in a little bit. But these are the 11 disciples now, and they're still faithful. And where do they go? They go back to Galilee. Why would they need to go back to Galilee? Because they're in Jerusalem. And you may remember from our study in Mark, that Galilee was the place where Jesus did the bulk of his ministry. The disciples followed him all over Galilee. Jesus was, of course, arrested. He was tried. He was crucified, and he rose. All of that happened in Jerusalem, some 80 miles south of Galilee. But now they go back. The disciples head back. You could say they head home. And we're told they go to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Not very specific for us, but the disciples knew right where to go. The area of Galilee was very hilly, and so this could be any number of places, but it seems that Jesus had a particular mountain in mind, and perhaps this was a favorite place that he and the disciples often went to. Who knows? But they head north, they go to this mountain, they go to Galilee, and when they get there, what do they do? They worship him. They worship him. Now, as we've studied through our series in Mark, we are very aware, painfully aware, of how the disciples struggle to grasp who Jesus is. And they had moments of enlightenment, but more often than not, they failed to grasp Jesus' identity. But now that he's risen from the dead, they know who he is, and they can't help but worship him. They get it. But then we get this disturbing phrase. It says, but some doubted. Some doubted. What's going on there? Are the disciples still struggling? I mean, even after he died and rose again, what else do you want to prove that he is who he says he is? Some doubted. Let's dig into this. First, I want to deal with the who. Who? 
not the band, the who here in the text, who doubted? Was it some of the 11? Was it others? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm inclined to think that when it says, but some doubted, it's talking about others other than, excuse me, the 11. There were other disciples besides the 11. See, at this time, here's why I say that. The 11 have already seen the risen Lord two or three times by this point. They know he's alive, and I doubt that they would have doubted the resurrection, or they would have doubted this is Jesus. But furthermore, if you back up in the text to verse 10, Jesus has just arisen, and he's talking to the women, and he says in verse 10 of chapter 28, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus uses that word brothers there in verse 10, and that suggests a broader group than just the 11. Also, something interesting to remember, Thomas would not believe the disciples' report of Jesus till he saw Jesus himself. So it's possible that when this says some doubted, that what we're dealing with, with is the broader group of disciples who have not yet seen the risen Lord. They've heard the stories, they've heard what the disciples have said, but they haven't actually seen him. Lastly, one more thing I want to say about this. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 tells us that at one time after the, erection, after the resurrection, more than 500 people saw him alive. Now, the incident in Matthew 28 could be what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians 15, and it makes sense. Because if they're in the open hill country of Galilee, that would make it easy for 500 people to gather and see him. So therefore, it makes more sense to me, as I read this, as I study this, it makes sense that those who doubted were the broader disciples of Jesus. Now, I could be wrong. I'll admit that. But I believe that's what's meant by some doubted. Now, here's another thing. That's that's the who. Now, let's address the what. What is meant by doubted? What did they doubt Maybe they doubted the resurrection. If they hadn't seen the resurrected Lord yet, maybe they were doubting he was actually raised from the dead. Maybe they were doubting that this was actually Jesus. It's possible that they were doubting that because the resurrection had changed him. He both is and is not the same. He is in a state of being that you and I can't fathom. He is restored. He is whole. He is new. I think if we were to see the resurrected Christ after seeing him walking the earth before the crucifixion, we'd be tempted to say, it looks like him, and yet it doesn't. And that could be the attitude, what's going on here. They could be thinking, I'm not sure what's going on here. It looks like him, and yet it doesn't. One more thing I want to say about this. The word doubt there, it's only used here and one other place in the New Testament. And it can mean, as it's translated, simply doubt. But it can also, be, also mean simply uncertain. It can mean hesitancy. So you can see that there may have been this attitude of just, they were hesitant. They weren't sure what was going on. And if we think about everything that's happened up to this point, Jesus was arrested He was crucified, and that threw all of his followers for a loop because they weren't expecting that. And then the women come, and they report that he's alive. And then the 11 come, and they report that he's alive. And to go back to Galilee, and they're thinking, what's going on? To hesitate, to doubt, 
To be uncertain, that would be a normal human response to everything that's happened. But whatever the reason, whatever's behind the but some doubted, they go to Galilee and the 11 and others worship him. And then Jesus has a message. He says in verse 18, Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says all authority. All authority has been given to me. Now that Jesus has come and he's completely fulfilled everything that the Father desired of him, he has been given authority over everything. Now, I don't think this means that Jesus did not have authority and then was granted authority. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what this means here is that when he was in human flesh, his authority was limited. And now that he's resurrected, his authority is once again complete. His authority was reduced while on earth, but now it's enlarged to encompass all of heaven and all of earth. And I think that's what this means. Michael J. Wilkes is a commentator, and he captures this idea in his commentary on Matthew when he writes this. During his earthly ministry, he had absolute authority, but his exercise of it was restricted to his incarnate consciousness. In his risen state, he exercises his absolute supremacy throughout all heaven and earth. All authority has been given to Jesus. And what does he do with that authority? He commissions his disciples. First thing he does is he commissions his disciples. Look at verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. That's it. That's the commission. That is the job of every Christian. Make disciples. That's our charge. The one who has been given all authority gives us this command, go make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? A disciple is simply a pupil, a learner, Here's a definition. A disciple is someone who adheres to the teachings of another. In the first century Jewish culture, this is something the rabbis would do. They would gather and make disciples, and they would teach them what they believed. Jesus is commissioning his disciples to make disciples, but not of them, of him. And by extension, we are to do the same. We are to make disciples of Jesus. Now, how do we do this? The first thing we have to do is go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The command is to make disciples. How do we do this? We have to go. Now, that word go is an aorist passive participle. Got that? It could be translated having gone. What's significant about that? It's assumed. It's assumed. That's what it's trying to communicate there. It's assumed that we know we have to go. We shouldn't expect people to come. We should go to them. Now, do people walk into churches and get saved? Absolutely. Can people get saved from a sermon or, or a time of worship or a church event? Absolutely. But the main way we're going to come into contact with unbelievers who need the gospel is we've got to go. We need to go. If we depend on people coming to the church to get saved, then I'm going to be honest with you, our harvest is going to be slim. We have to go. We have to get uncomfortable. Go where? The text tells us, to all nations. 
Now, that's significant because the gospel was first and foremost for the Jews. Romans 1.16 reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you, it started with the Jews, but then it expanded to all nations. Now, I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson here. The word for all means all, just so we're clear. But that is significant because no nation is excluded from the gospel message. No nation on earth is excluded from the gospel message. No ethnic group is excluded from receiving the gospel message. I have heard, and I'm sure you have too, I've heard of crazy religious assemblies that claim only certain ethnic groups are welcomed by God, but I'm here to tell you that's a lie. The gospel message is meant for all. So what does all this mean for us? Quite simply, it means we need to go. Go where? Well, first and foremost, and you've heard me say this before, it means we need to consider our sphere of influence. Our day-to-day life, who is it that we come into contact with in our day-to-day life? Who is it that we come into contact with who needs the Lord? We must consider first and foremost our sphere of influence. But secondly, it means that we might need to broaden our sphere of influence. Sometimes we are too enclosed in our little life, and sometimes God wants us to broaden that sphere of influence. It means we might need to get on our knees and ask the Lord, is there some way you want me to get beyond my normal areas of life so that I can share the gospel with people I don't know, I've never met? So let me ask you, Harvest, how can you step beyond your sphere of influence How can you break the normal routine of your life in order to come into contact with people you wouldn't normally? I mean, this could be something as simple as shopping at a different store sometimes. It could mean something bigger, like a short-term missions trip. It could mean doing something you don't normally do to get you out of your routine so that you could meet new people. How can you get beyond your sphere of influence? One more thing, what else does this mean to us? It means that if we are to go to all nations, then we cannot let any racial barriers keep us, keeping us from proclaiming the gospel. There is no room in the Christian life for racial barriers. It's ungodly, it's unbiblical, it's flat out wrong. If there are people groups that cause you to bristle or that you just avoid altogether, then, then let me just say in love, you need to get alone with God. And ask him to forgive you for that and shape your heart to love those people because the gospel's for them too. Ask the Holy Spirit to change you. To fulfill the command to make disciples, not only do we need to go to all nations, but secondly, we are commissioned to baptize believers in Jesus. Look at verse 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me be clear, baptism is not a means of making disciples, okay? Don't mistake what the text is saying. Matthew is not saying you have to baptize them to make them a disciple. Baptism is a characteristic of a disciple. It's what disciples do. Jesus is saying here, as you make disciples, 
baptize them. Now, why? Why would we be concerned with baptizing people if it's not required to make a disciple? Let me ask it this way. If baptism is not salvific, if it doesn't save people, why do we do it? Well, baptism was a Jewish custom. When Gentiles wanted to become Jewish proselytes, they would get baptized. So the disciples on the mountain would have understood what Jesus was saying here, baptize them as a way of showing their commitment to Jesus. It's a sign. It's a symbol of the work God has already done in the heart of the believer. Now, I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again. A wedding ring is a sign that a person's married. Any single person can put on a wedding ring, but that does not make them married. Any married person can refrain from wearing a wedding ring, but that doesn't make them unmarried. See, baptism is is similar in that it's a sign. It's a symbol of salvation. When we witness someone being baptized, we understand they are demonstrating an outward sign of an inward faith. They've already become a disciple before being baptized. They're simply stating to the world, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. And that's why we do baptisms today. It's a sign of God's work in the heart of the disciple. And Jesus, by the way, commands it right here. So we ought to obey his command. Now, as a part of the discipleship process, we baptize people. Jesus says here to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, just a warning. This is not meant to be formulaic, okay? In other words, it's not meant... To, to be something that we always do in this same way over and over again. When someone is baptized by a pastor, he doesn't have to say the words in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, in, a, in the Acts chapter 2, Peter's telling the people, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and he just says, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So it's not meant to be formulaic. Then what's going on there? We should look at this as a person identifying with all of God. That's what's meant there. John MacArthur writes this, these words are rather a rich and comprehensive statement of the wonderful union that believers have with the whole Godhead. When you become a believer, you have a relationship with each part of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and baptism is demonstrating that. Now, being baptized in the Father, Son, and Spirit also is strongly suggestive of the Trinity. We believe in the Trinity here at Harvest. We believe in one God who exists in three persons, and we are baptized into the name. Did you see that? Into the name, not names. We are baptized into the name of God, not several gods. We believe in one God and three persons. And one thing that it does here in the text is this confirms the deity of Jesus Christ. A Jewish audience would have recognized the Father. A Jewish audience would have even recognized the Spirit of God. They would have had no problem with a person being baptized in the Father and the Spirit. But to include the Son would have been shocking. So again, we've been talking throughout our series in Mark how Jesus again and again demonstrates his deity. And he does so here in his final words to his disciples. He includes himself in Father and Spirit. Now, what do we do with all this information? Well, let me encourage you, and let me encourage myself and all of us. We need to have a high view of baptism. Baptism is one of two Christian ordinances. Now, an ordinance 
is a ceremonial act. Think of it as a ceremonial act. And the church has two, baptism and what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Now, even though baptism is not necessary for salvation, we ought to view it in high regard. Jesus commanded that we be baptized. This shouldn't be something we ignore. It shouldn't be something we think lightly about. Baptism, as I said earlier, is an expression of our union with Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 6, 3, and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is a demonstration of that union that we have with Christ. I died with him, and I have been raised with him to walk in newness of life. Why would we not want to express that? You know, if a man falls in love with a woman and he refuses to express that, there's something wrong there, yo. I mean, he needs to go serenade her or at least get her a Hallmark card, something. I don't know. But we ought to express our union with Jesus Christ. We need to hold baptism in high regard. So we ought to encourage those who have not been baptized to get baptized. When a person that we know comes to know Jesus Christ, we ought to encourage them to get baptized. Now, I understand we might want to wait a little bit to make sure the conversion was genuine. I get that. But at some point, I'd say sooner rather than later, we need to encourage them to get baptized. And while I'm on this topic, October 15th, we're having a baptism service right here, and if you need to get baptized, you come see me, and we'll talk about that. So what's our commission? We are to make disciples. How do we do that? We go, we baptize, last of all, we teach. Here's your final point this morning. We are commanded to teach God's word. Look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We go, we baptize, we teach. That's what's involved in the making of disciples. We can't stop it going. We can't stop at baptizing. When a person comes to faith in Christ, usually their next question is, now what? Now we learn. Now we're taught, and this is what continues for the believer for the rest of his or her life. Remember, a disciple is a pupil, a learner. We are to learn the things of God from now until we die. Rabbis made disciples by teaching them. Jesus here is instructing his disciples to make disciples who learn about him from them. Teach them all I have commanded you. Now, the immediate context of this verse would be all of Jesus' specific commands. Interestingly enough, many scholars believe that one of the reasons Matthew wrote his gospel was to have a record of Jesus' teachings for just this purpose. And I think that's very likely. Jesus wanted his specific teachings to be taught to others, so Matthew and, of course, the other gospel writers wrote them down. However, it doesn't stop there. By extension, the full canon of God's word cannot be ignored. 
It's all about Jesus, Genesis to Revelation. Jesus didn't mean only teach them what I taught you while I was on earth. He wants us to teach them his entire word. Why? Well, first and foremost, it's the message of salvation. There's no other message that brings someone into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the message of salvation. But secondly, it's the message of God's truth. It's how we learn who God is and how God wants his disciples to live. It's how we learn how to be in this relationship with him. It's how we learn to obey. It's how we learn to use our gifts. It's how we learn to be his church. It's how we learn to love one another. It's how we learn to bring others to know him. It's his word. It's his message. And this is why, by the way, we focus on the preaching of God's word here at Harvest. I know I've already talked about this, but I'm gonna say it again. There is no other teaching that we focus on. You won't hear us teaching from any other book or any other philosophy. We preach God's word and we preach it alone. Why do we do this? Or, or what? What, sorry, what do we do with all this information I've just given you? What do we do with it? If we are to walk away with a high regard for baptism, then equally so, we should walk away with a high regard for God's word. If this truly is the very word of God that we should live by, then we should know his word. Jesus himself, during his time on earth, he lived by the word of God. How was it that he had scripture ready on the tip of his tongue to counterattack Satan's advances? Because he knew the word. Jesus loved the word. He studied the word. He lived by the word. He was the word. We should live likewise. Read God's word. Study God's word. Memorize God's word. Live by God's word. These are the three things that we need in order to fulfill the great commission to make disciples. Go, baptize, teach. But notice, Jesus doesn't stop there. He leaves them with a promise. Look at verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're not left with merely a command. We're left with a promise of his presence. See, Jesus wasn't interested in just making a bunch of callous proselytes. It's not about Jesus gathering hordes of worshipers to merely give him lip service. It's about restoring the relationship we lost in the garden. It's about receiving the very presence of God. When you become a disciple, you're not a drone. You're a human being who's come back to his father. We have been promised his presence. This ensures our relationship with him, but it also encourages us to do the task of making disciples. We can't do this in our own power. We can't go baptize and teach in our own strength. This is a massive task. This is a world-altering work, and this can't be done unless he's with us. You know, it's interesting, the book of Matthew is bookended with this idea of God's presence among men. In chapter 1, Matthew records how an angel came to Joseph's, or Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, 
and told him to take Mary as his wife. And then Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew then returns to that truth at the end of his book by promising that Jesus will be with us. It's about the presence of God. God's presence didn't leave when Jesus ascended. The plan Since the fall of man, the plan has been to restore the presence of God, God dwelling with his people. That's what we lost in the garden. Along with our innocence, we lost the presence of God. And all throughout the Old Testament, God was restoring his presence in stages. He chose a people by whom he would come. He took up residence in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And then he came in the flesh. But even when he left this earth, he promised to remain present. You know, it wasn't long after this in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit came and resided on those who believed in Jesus. And this same Holy Spirit comes to each of us who believe in Christ. He is with us. This is my favorite promise. He is with us. How long? How long is he planning on being with us? The text tells us, always to the end of the age. I am with you always, not sometimes. Always to the end of the age. What does that mean, to the end of the age? It means till the end of history as we know it. He is with us until he comes back to set up his kingdom. Then guess what? He's still gonna be with us just in a better way, in a physical way, in a tangible way. Our faith shall become sight. As 1 Corinthians 13, 12 puts it, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Do you know what this does to our hearts? The presence of God, the promise of his presence, do you know what that does to our hearts? First, it comforts our hearts. Have you ever been comforted simply by someone's presence? You know, maybe you were going through something difficult and a good friend was there. And maybe there was nothing they could even really do, but just having them present was a comfort to you. Jesus' presence is even greater than that. It is first a strong source of comfort, but secondly, it strengthens our hearts to be able to do this impossible task. This work of making disciples is hard, It's scary, it doesn't feel natural, and it flies in opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are up against a mountain of antagonism. There's no way we could fulfill our commission without the presence of our commander. We are called to do this job to make disciples, but we are not left to do it ourselves. He is with us. Now, let me ask this question. Is Jesus' presence with you? I told you earlier I'd come back to this idea. Like Judas, you can seemingly follow Jesus and still not have his presence. You can be raised in the church and still miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss this. How do I know if I've missed it or not? 
Well, let me ask you a question. Do you naturally have a gospel pattern in your life? What's a gospel pattern? Three words. Repent, believe, love. That's the gospel pattern. Repent, believe, love. If you live your life in that pattern, then you have been affected by the gospel. You are anchored in Christ. You haven't missed it. But if you don't live your life in that pattern, if there's not repentance in your heart over sin, refocusing your mind back on Christ when you've gotten off and choosing to love others when you fail to do so, if that's not present in your life, something's wrong. It could be that you've never had your gospel moment with Jesus. It could be you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. So let me ask, is that you? You can become a believer right now by simply repenting, which means turning away from your sin, and believing, which means turning toward Christ. Turning from sin, turning toward Christ. And you might ask, well, how do I do that? It's by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me encourage you. If you have never turned from your sin and turned toward Jesus by faith, then today is your day. Simply where you're sitting right now, you can say a prayer to Jesus, something along these lines that says, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. I embrace you by faith. I turn to you by faith. Come in and make me new. I'll be around after the service. If you have more questions on that, please come and talk to me. But for you, fellow believer, do you follow that pattern? Repent, believe, live. That's the gospel. That's living out the gospel is what I meant to say. If you follow that pattern, that is evidence to your soul that you truly get it. You are truly his. If you repent of sin, if that's something that you do, I mean, I, yes, I know, once we receive Christ, all sin's forgiven, I believe that, yes. But confession of daily sin is important. Do you turn your focus back on Christ when it's gotten off? Do you choose to love others around you when you fail to do so? We should go through that pattern every single day. Repent, believe, love. Repent, believe, love. My beloved friends, that's the pattern of the gospel. We are commissioned. We are commissioned as a church not to hunt down a dreaded pirate, but to bring the gospel to a desperate and dying world. We are commissioned to go, baptize, and teach. Does that sound too big for your shoulders. It is. How do we do that? We look to our Savior. Our Savior was also given a commission. He was sent. He was baptized. He taught. He presented the gospel message all throughout his earthly ministry. But then he went a step further. He did something no one else could have ever done. He not only taught the gospel message, he lived the gospel message. He was the gospel message. He literally made the gospel what it is. Without his death and resurrection, there would be no gospel message. 
How can we take this gospel message to our families, to our neighbors, to our city, to our state, to our country, to our world? We depend on our Savior who has already done the work. We just need to follow him. We look to him for our strength, for our focus, and for our confidence. Trust him, church, and then go baptize and teach. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our Savior, our Commander, how great and awesome you are. Thank you for your death and resurrection. Thank you for commissioning us to do this great work of making disciples. Thank you that you promised to always be with us. Lord, help us to do this work. Help us to be bold as you were bold. Help us to go as you went. Help us to explain the gospel well. Help us to instruct disciples in the truths of your word. Help us to continue doing what we're doing and help us to learn how we can do it better and greater and further. Show us who we can witness to and how we can advance in making disciples. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.